Hello and welcome back to Mind Matters, everyone. On today's show, we are going to be journeying back into Jordan B. Peterson's Maps of Meaning, continuing a discussion that we left off a few weeks ago on Chapter 2. Uh, last uh, In the last show, we discussed mostly the psychological and behavioral antecedents, I guess, in human adaptation and our biology that uh, predisposes us towards the unknown and the known, these two broad uh, domains of, un- of experience that have universal value, that everybody, there's the unknown that um, has certain features, and then there's the known that has certain features, and we, just like mice and just like other mammals, um, interact with one another and with the world in different ways, depending on whether we are under the domain of the unknown or in the domain of the known. And on this week's show, we're going to be discussing a little bit more of the sociological and mythological Uh, implications for this, because Jordan Peterson goes into great depths discussing, you know, uh, Babylonian, Egyptian, Sumerian myths and how they are relevant and how we should read them in order to understand how the ancients viewed the world versus how we view the world. As the ancients viewed the world, it, it wasn't so much a, you couldn't cleave the subject from the object and investigate objective reality without subjective reality also imposing its own demands on the material. So, you know, the earth wasn't just the earth in mythology. The sky wasn't just the sky. An evil king wasn't just an evil king. Everything was categorized according to a mythological mandate that necessitated that everything that was unknown or evil could be could be interchanged within this within this realm and it also carried powerful um, moral uh, uh, moral exemplars, I guess, for behavior in order to understand how we should value the world and how we should interact with the world. How do we interact with the unknown? How do we interact with the known? How do we interact with one another? How do we how do we um, understand the what it means to be heroic? You know, what is the ideal? What is the exemplar that we all strive for? So he discusses that um, in quite a bit in this book, in this in in chapter two. So Harrison, do you have any thoughts? Yeah. Well, the first thing I want to talk about is just the overall framework that he uses. This kind of um, you could call it our archetypal outlook. He, of course, likes Carl Jung doesn't kind of, he doesn't follow him slavishly or anything but i just want to talk about this this idea of the archetypes because there's there are some i think that when when they encounter that term have this idea of what the arc what an archetype might be or what the collective unconscious might be and i think that might be it's not really what uh, peterson ex- is exactly getting at in this chapter so an archetype isn't necessarily like uh, a universal symbol that every culture has as in for example, a star-headed antelope turtle or something, as if every human culture has access to this database of, of odd creatures and then accesses it, and the, there's the star-headed antelope turtle. It's not, that's not exactly what he's saying. Maybe some people have a, a view that's more along those lines, but his is more... He, he's already established that th- this kind of this uh this framework for looking at reality in terms of these three things the known the unknown and the uh, and the knower and like we talked about on the previous show that is 
as far as I can tell, a, a, an accurate description of reality. You can you can look at all of reality in that using that framework, um, and everything within that. Well, within that is everything. It's very you can have any any number of facts or images or phenomena or behaviors. But as an overall framework, it works because that seems to be how the universe is structured. That seems to be how human consciousness is structured, in the sense that we we do come to know things through an encounter with the unknown. And um, when it comes to the images, the symbols, the archetypes that go along with that, the ones that he identifies are essentially <clears throat> universal, universal, like truly universal features of the human experience. So you've got essentially a father, a mother, their offspring, and then a monster, essentially. Or you can put all those in the plural because th there are divisions within that too. So you can have an evil mother or a or a good mother, an evil father, a good father, um, an evil son or a good son. And then you've again you've got the unknown, and the unknown too can be uh, creator or destroyer. It, it, it's it, it it's also it's also uh, there's this dual essence to it. So you have these archetypes that really are universal to not only human experience but to pretty much most biological life, at least the, the biological life that, is, that reproduces sexually. So from, from the mammals and all the way down, you, you've, you, well, not all the way down, but for vast numbers of creatures, they do have, they do have parents. They, they, that's how they were formed. And they do encounter chaos. They do encounter the unknown in their experiences. And, they, and all creatures are adapted to that experience. And what I mean by that, and what Peterson, I think, means by that, is that their consciousness is, is such that when encountering something new, there is a behavioral response, or there's, there are, are several options for behavioral response that are basically set that um, that are that are that are universal either for species or um, or for the whole kind of animal kingdom. So, as, as an example, th this will go back to the stuff we talked about last week or or the a couple weeks ago. When, if you look at mammals, for instance, when they encounter the unknown, when they encounter something that that is not within their their realm of uh, of established habit and and um, like routine living, there will often be like a freezing response or a fleeing response or a fighting response. <clears throat> but it's pretty universal. We have that. It's 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 encoded into us on a biological level, and on a very deep like psychological level. There's the experience of it, and there's the behavioral manifestation of it. And so, what he is saying is that these very basic and fundamental reactions and experiences then get encoded or stored in mythology. And you can see that in the characters, the characters of these myths, their features, and the, the actions they engage in within the myths. There is, and naturally he's kind of, the way, the way I say it, he's kind of he set him. He set. He set himself up to succeed because by picking something so basic and so universal, you can you can find that in everything, right? So you can find it in mythology. It's just that I think in in this case, it's it's more true than not true because um, with a with something like a story, it, it's kind of in your face, 
and with something as elemental and you know basic as the the biological unit the family the family structure of of humanity you can't help but but put in universal themes and you can't help but perceive and you know bring out those uni universal themes when you see them so of course myth is probably more uh, it's, it's deeper than that there's more to it than that but that establishes kind of the basics of of how he's able to categorize things and then analyze them now the kind of a, just a, an academic point would be some some might say oh well He's kind of projecting his ideas onto these ancient cultures. They didn't necessarily see them that way, and I think they're probably true, that, or that's probably right. It's not like the, it's not like you could get Jordan Peterson in the same room as an ancient Babylonian, and they'd you know be in complete agreement about what these myths mean. But I still do think there's some validity in just in the sense that I said that that whether it's recognized or not, these universal relationships and uh, and characteristics and behaviors do play themselves out in these narratives and that that there has to be something about about those narratives about those myths for why they were so important and why they lasted so long and i don't think that i think there are a lot of cheap explanations for why that's the case but um but i think that i think you have to go a bit deeper in order to to understand that, and that's that's kind of what what I like about his approach is that it's, it's at least uh, a plausible attempt to go mm -hmm. to go that deep, whether or not it's like the whole picture. And there's, I think that's not the case. That there there are probably other elements that uh, that Peterson doesn't um, doesn't get into or doesn't uh, might not be familiar with or just doesn't doesn't focus on. But um, but you know that's probably for another show. Well, I, I had. A, a similar thought, um, you know, he cites the uh, the Egyptian myth of um, Osiris and Seth and uh, and Isis and that whole battle, and um, and what it meant in terms of you know destruction and regeneration and and uh, and rebirth and out of the chaos, and I was also um, comparing that to other uh, understandings or perspectives on that particular myth and thinking, well, that that's that's quite a bit different it has some things in common mm -hmm. and um but then i was just thinking uh myths are, are perhaps a power of a particular myth is also that they can be read in multiple different ways mm -hmm. yeah and and that they're they're multi-dimensional and um and have a just like a good a good film has a you know it has a very basic story on the surface and then and then a subtext that that um that is really kind of describing a whole other uh, dynamic or a, or a different dynamic that may not be apparent upon a first viewing mm -hmm. uh, or or reading. Well, I'm just curious um, if you want to share what was the what was the other interpretation you had in mind of that of that myth? Uh, well, it was the um, the the cutting up of uh, of um, Osiris as a as a kind of um, metaphor for. Uh, the possibility that we as human beings might have been mm. had our DNA uh, truncated or or um, or uh, malformed in, in some form or another. Okay. Not, not a very yeah. not a very well known uh, uh -huh. version of it, but that yeah. that's what came to mind originally. Yeah. Well. So for me, well, right away, kind of proving your point, multiple interpretations come to mind. Right. So that that's one. Another is the idea of 
like we talked about last week of a soul pool or a soul group that divides and then manifests itself in consciousness. It's like the universe is, is like the dismemberment of a, of a God, the dismemberment of a, of a giant consciousness into these little itty bitty fragments of consciousness that we call ourselves. Mm -hmm. That's another one. Another one is the one from like, uh, um, what's his name? The astrophysicist guy, um, well, Mike Bailey's one. He's the dendrochronologist, um, the British guy, Victor oh. Klub, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and the guy he wrote with the I can't remember his name, but the idea that these myths are are um, narrative kind of story versions of actual events that were seen in the skies, like the breakup of a of a large comet. So they go through all these myths, uh, Greek myths and uh, Chinese myths, Irish myths, um, and show these kind of universal, well, semi-universal features that are at least shared between these cultures and these myth systems of a god that is dismembered and that causes destruction. And there are all these kind of features of these myths, and they relate that to um, to these hypothesized and sometimes fairly well-proven close encounters with comets, comets or real encounters where if you imagine what it must have been like, um, because we, in our in our... Um, immediate memory, like human memory, don't, haven't had an, an encounter with a comet like that. But from what we know about comets and what we can um, kind of recreate about what that must have been like, uh, it must have been uh, a big, uh, well, how to put it, a profound experience, looking up in the sky and seeing this gigantic, like, light thing, this this shining something taking these weird forms because of the comet tail and um and its interaction with the atmosphere and then parts breaking off and and gravitation uh gravitation and with other fragments causing a, like the breakup of this comet so that it then becomes these other bits so you can see you could you could see this this fantastic battle in the skies and then the resulting um catastrophe of some of those fragments crashing to earth and causing massive fires and earthquakes and all kinds of destruction. This is the kind of thing that happened in the younger Dryas um, that we talked about, you know, a month or two ago about Graham Hancock's book, but it was, it must've been a formative experience for humanity or several formative experiences to, to have these things happen. But, um, and I think that there's some merit to that. Of course, Peterson doesn't get into it at all, but I think there's some merit to that approach the problem with that approach, though, which Peterson does mention just briefly, is, well, if, if something like that is the case, and these myths actually represent something different, like they're, they're allegories for some real events or um, encoded versions of some, some science or some history, mm -hmm. it doesn't explain the story or why the people that told these myths told them in the way that they did. Why do we, why do we see that comet as a father figure? Or this one as a mother figure. Why do we? Why do we? Well, the well, the an the answer should be obvious. Like we ascribe these characteristics to to things like that because they are in our everyday experience. Those are the things most universal and most close to us. Is is the experience of the the family unit and the interactions, the the social behavioral interactions, and in that that we that we have amongst each other and with each other. And so we're going to tell a story about it. That's what makes the, the story. So you can't, you can't necessarily sep one, separate one from the other. Um, well, you can in certain cases. So in this case, for myths that were told about experiences of this, of this sort, 
you, you're going to have the narrative elements that were put into the creation of this story that are going to be derived from these human universal experiences and creating like creating a plausible storyline for these events that happen in the skies. But you'll also get just pure stories that aren't that that aren't influenced by cosmic events, but that are that are just basically rooted in um, in in human experience. And so you get we get that today for people that are writing um, like a. Novels for young kids or science fiction novels or fantasy novels. There's all kinds of creative kind of myth making that's going on that isn't necessarily directly inspired by any kind of um, like hidden intended hidden meanings for for being the expl- the explanation for some scientific thing or some some secret event that happened or for some big event. Sometimes it's just it's just a creative thing, right? A creative story. And so the, th- the thing about a lot of these myths, perhaps, that uh, Peterson's talking about is that they are, for, for whatever reason, they are very good distillations or exemplars of that kind of creativity and that kind of story making and storytelling. That there's, um, like, some stories are just better than others. Some don't, some don't, um, some you don't get a, just like stand-up comedy. Sometimes your joke doesn't work. Sometimes your story doesn't work. Sometimes, but then every once in a while you hear a really good joke, and that one sticks. And and sometimes there's a really good story, and a, and a really um, um, even if it's if it wasn't intended to be, it becomes that. And you see that like with a lot of classic literature, where um, it just by by chance sometimes something lives on and something retains its popularity throughout the ages. And this is really a, an attempt to analyze why that is, why these stories in particular, what makes them so special that they seem to resonate with a, a lot of people um, and don't just get forgotten and you know tossed another way spin of history because, the, because they didn't resonate that well with other people. Well, when you were saying that, and I hope this isn't too much of a digression, I was thinking a little bit about Star Wars, which is our modern myth telling, and how wonderful, uh, how wonderfully uh, George Lucas had created this this mythology, complete with a um, a, a devouring uh, evil father, a uh, uh, an archetypical uh, heroic figure in the form of Luke Skywalker, um, you know the forces of nature, uh, no pun intended, and um, and. And just how um, how much it meant for people as a as a kind of contemporary myth or reworking of of other myths, uh, but that had failed so recently uh, in in the latest trilogy, precisely because there was no honoring of of that previous mythology in in the sense that that all the fans had uh, held it uh, so dear to them. Um, so that you know, uh, is a, a just, a, just a kind of contemporary example of when one of those myths isn't particularly good or, or, or doesn't hold to the tradition out of, out of which it came. People know, uh, people recognize it and people get upset by it, uh, because it becomes subverted. It becomes something that, um, that it, that falls far short of, of the power that the, that the myth was uh, had originally uh, when it when it came on the scene. 
<clears throat> well, we had talked a little bit about, or you, you discussed the the myth of Osiris and Jordan Peterson's uh, take on it. And I thought it was, it was kind of interesting. Um, so like, you know, everyone's probably fairly well aware of Osiris. Uh, it was like the, was it the wife of Isis? And he was, or, or yeah, I'm sorry. It was the husband of Isis and he was killed by his brother set. I think he was, you know, the set was this, you know, this plotter conspirator who wanted to um, kill off Osiris and, um, cut him up, carved him up, and then shipped him down the Nile, essentially. So this is what Jordan Peterson writes about it. The death of, of Osiris signifies two important things. One, the tendency of a static ruling idea, system of evaluation, or particular story, no matter how initially magnif uh, magnificent or appropriate, to become increasingly irrelevant with time. And two, the dangers that necessarily accrue to a state that forgets or refuses to admit to the existence of the immortal deity of evil. Seth, the king's brother and opposite, represents the mythic hostile twin or adversary who eternally opposes the process of creative encounter with the unknown, signifies, alternatively speaking, a pattern of adaptation characterized by absolute opposition to establishment of divine order. When this principle gains control, that is, usurps the throne, the quote-unquote rightful king and his kingdom are necessarily doomed." Seth and figures like him, often represented in narrative by the corrupt right-hand man or advisor to the once great king, view human existence itself with contempt. Such figures are motivated only to protect or advance their position in the power hierarchy, even when the prevailing order is clearly counterproductive. Their actions necessarily speed the process of decay, endemic to all structures. Osiris, although great, was naive in some profound sense, blind at, le at least to the existence of quote-unquote immortal evil. This blindness and its resultant incaution brings about, or at least hastens, Osiris's demise." And when a great organization disintegrates, falls into pieces, the pieces might still usefully be fashioned into or give rise to something else, perhaps something more vital and still greater. Isis, therefore, gives birth to a son, Horus, who returns to his rightful uh, kingdom to confront his evil uncle. Horus fights a difficult battle with Seth as the forces of evil are difficult to overcome and loses an eye in the process. Seth is overcome nonetheless. Horus recovers his eyes. The story could stop there, narrative integrity intact, with the now whole and victorious Horus's well-deserved ascension to the throne. However, Horus does the unexpected, descending voluntarily to the underworld to find his father. It is representation of this move, rem reminiscent of Marduk's voluntary journey to the underworld of Tiamat, that constitutes the brilliant and original contribution of Egyptian theology. Horus discovers Osiris, extant in a state of torpor. He offers his recovered eye to his father, so that Osiris can see once again. They return united and victorious, and establish a revivified kingdom. The kingdom of the son and father is an improvement over that of the father or the son alone, as it unites the hard-won wisdom of the past, that is, of the dead, with the adaptive capacity of the present, that is, of the living. The reestablishment and improvement of the domain of order is schematically represented in, in some figure that we don't have access to right now. But anyways, the um, that whole story, the way that he describes it, like you said, you could be projecting onto it. But then at the same time, you could also see if you read that um, and you're, you're, you're being entertained by the story, you're seeing these thematic elements take place and you're seeing what happens when corruption 
take place in in your what the government of the country that you run and and you see this this um, this need to avenge that and to put things right again and then how you put things right you put things right by you know kicking out the bad guy and then reestablishing your connection with the past with your ancestors with traditions and so on and so forth so in this way this myth is a um, like Peterson would say, it's a it's a guide for behavior. It's a fundamental way of of ascertaining what in the world is important. Well, you know, the right leadership is important. Okay, so what is the right leadership? Well, you have to have these moral attributes. Okay, so then what happens if you don't have them? Then you know the world is kind of probably going to end up to go and go to pieces. Well, then how do we how do we recover these things? Well, you have to um, reestablish the proper conduct and you do that through a uh, the the unity of you know tradition and the the present moment you have to pay attention to the ancestors you have to go back to the traditions and you have to make yourself right with the universe with god again basically so in in many ways it's it's a it's an ancient wisdom which i don't know how ancient you know these these myths Go. I mean, we've discussed in previous shows on uh, the the book Origins of World Mythology that it could they they could go back just thousands and thousands and thousands of years and have could have emerged just you know full grown at some point and because there's definitely two it seems like there's two according to the thesis of that book two major systems of these myths but as time goes on they form this skeleton that um, that people project. Um, their own history onto. So if you're a great hero, then you're not going to be, you know, Bob the hero. You're going to end up be. You're going to be assimilated to this this um, this larger myth. And you know that's just kind of how we we simultaneously butcher and honor our history as we you know, as we go through. We you retain all the best things and you create these these great idols to emulate and that will guide you. You know, in this kind of group. Um, group think and uh, you know and then you know it's just you know you you like some myths you don't like some you know there are some that you can tell that are you know bastardized like you've just like you were saying Elon um, and there's just this human intuition and desire to have good stories to have stories that are proper that portray the correct kind of moral code you know and then when those things aren't when those aren't present then you have a different mythology for what you know how you should interact with the rea- with world in that you know in that case mm-hmm. yeah I, I would just add that they're you know uh just as they're metaphors for good governance they're also these metaphors for uh individual uh dissolution uh coming across the anomaly the 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 revolutionary problem uh but also, you know, amongst being dismembered, uh, or or having a fall, or um, or having a negative disintegration, or a bankruptcy, or or any one of the number of terms that that that's similar or synonymous in in the upheaval that can exist in a person, uh, that th- that this metaphor uh, aptly describes the dynamic involved. Um, with uh, the possibility, at least, for reintegration and and growth after after these different forces in the form of these you know these these different gods uh, or personages interact with each other, you know we have we have uh, you know you you might say we're manifesting a little bit these archetypes mm-hmm. in in our own lives, 
and um, and so by by uh, by telling of these myths, uh, by recalling them, and by putting them in the context of you know maps of meaning and, and navigating life, uh, Peterson is saying you can think of of your life and 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 your journey um, and use this metaphor for uh, for what's involved. Um, Mm-hmm. So uh, I I think that's what he's doing there. Um, he also goes on to, uh, unless we wanted to discuss that particular myth a little more, he gets into the uh, the devouring mother, um, which is quite interesting. Um, the the archetype of the you know the, the the mother that that brings a person into life. Uh, in a, in the, vi- the very violent, bloody act of birth, uh, but also in her physicality has the capability to nurture um, through her milk. And, um, but, but she can also be a, an oppressive being in the, in the life of a child. Uh, she stands for all of these things. Um, and he, you know, he talks about these myths as being part of a, a tradition that storytellers and artists, although I don't recall if he uses the word artists or not in particular, but um, part of, I guess, um, being integrated to some degree is having an appreciation for and an understanding of these mythologies that that have a very deep uh, and and maybe even unconscious effect on how we interact with things. So I was reading about this all-devouring mother um, mythology that he brings up, and I was thinking, gosh, that, that reminds me a great deal of the Pink Floyd song, uh, Mother, <laughs> that's, in, <laughs> yeah. that's in the wall. Mm-hmm. And I just thought I'd read the lyrics because by his description, I thought they were so profoundly similar mm-hmm. to me. And, and I thought, gee, it really is an archetype that, that um, by all accounts, Roger Waters is uh, one of... Our, our most wonderful contemporary artists and music um, of, of, the, of the past 40 years. So these are the lyrics to Mother. Mother, do you think they'll drop the bomb? Mother, do you think they'll like the song? Mother, do you think they'll try to break my balls? Ah, Mother, should I build a wall? Mother, should I run for president? Mother, should I trust the government? Mother, will they put me in the firing line? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not going to sing for you today, folks, <laughs> although I'd love to. Uh, sing along in your head. But I don't think you'd love to hear me. Um, ah, is it just a waste of time? Hush now, baby, baby, don't you cry. There it is, I'm singing. Mama's going to make all of your nightmares come true. Mama's going to put all of her fears into you. Mama's going to keep you right here under her wing. She won't let you fly, but she might let you sing. Mama's going to keep you, baby, cozy and warm. Oh, of course, Mama's going to help build a wall. And there are more lyrics. Uh, look them up. But um, what Roger Waters was attempting to do was to impart all of this power that was both imposed upon him by the all-devouring mother, um, but also something that he's internalized. And um, it, it just, uh, it's, um, 
It's, it's wonderful in, in, in how well it expresses that whole all-devouring mm. mother myth, I should say. Well, and even there's a bit more, more than just the mother in it, too, because the whole idea of building a wall. Yes. The wall is this enclosed space. It's the, it's the space of order. That's the, that's the father. That's the, the order imposed on society. It's the, it's the realm of the known. It's the social order. It's the, it's the boundary between the, everything that is stable and, and traditional and set in, set in stone, literally, and the, the wilderness, the, the outside, where foreigners and monsters and demons live. And the unknown. The unknown. And so when you... When you build a wall, there's this there's this duality to the wall too. The the duality, or the wall, um, does protect you from outside forces, but it also prevents you from advancing beyond the wall. It's it's as much a protection as it is a prison. And this is the this is the duality of the the father archetype, who is who can be both uh, a tyrant and a and a close minded uh, close minded conservative. Um, has it resistant to any change whatsoever, and uh, and the protector, you know, the 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 source of tradition and all the all the good that comes out of that. The wall, the walled garden, the walled castle has both of those features, and so so right there you have all of you have all those elements kind of just mixed into this one little ditty, uh, a good one. <laughs> but um, uh, maybe just if you want to get back to the to the mother a bit more on the father first is something i don't have the quote from from it because i was listening to the audiobook and didn't find the passage but there's a one point in the chapter where peterson's talking about the about the the civilizing effect of of the you know the father archetype and of, of society in general and civilization and the and the, its relationship with you know, that encounter of the the known and the, the the knower with the unknown but the point he makes is that the more the more civilized you become, in a sense, the more you order your environment, the more, the more you have everything in control, the more terrified you are of the unknown. Because you're so used to everything being in its right place, to having everything be regular, having everything being, um, you know, like an, like an OCD person, having everything defined and rigid and predictable, predictable then the slightest jarring of that predictability can create a you know an earthquake in you or some kind of catastrophe so you're you become less um less adept at encountering the unknown because you have no experience of the unknown you're living your life in this sheltered bubble of of tradition and of regular stability and predictability and so where can you go from there? That's the that's when tradition and um, and order becomes uh, tyrannical in a sense and stultifying. That there's there's nothing new that can enter into that. And of course, that requires that requires something else. That requires the hero to to then go out and and encounter the unknown and bring something new back and re and reinvigorate reinvigorate the tradition. But I think that's a for some reason that point just stood out to me that um it, it, you can look at it on a whole bunch of different levels like if you if you look at just our experience of modern civilization that we live in how so much is uh, taken care of so much is ordered so much is 
um, is brought within the realm of the known that we really have very comfortable lives comparatively and for the most part. Of course, not totally because everyone has tragedies that come into their lives and difficulties, but there, there is a lot of uh, civilization in the sense of we, li we live in cities where things go relatively well. Like Peterson always says, like the, we manage to keep the electricity on for the most part, and that's a, that's a huge deal. But what, what, is, what is the downside of that? And that is that we are un, we are, we're not prepared for the big catastrophes that come our way. We've kind of, uh, we've kind of gone, gone soft and um, we've gone soft and lost that kind of that adventurous spirit and that, that, uh, that drive towards the unknown. The, the more civilized become, we become, the less willing we are to encounter chaos and to encounter the unknown. And so, it's, again, there's that duality. There's the positive aspects, but then the negative aspects that actually hold us back from, from learning. And if that's the, the purpose of life is to, to actually gain new experiences and, and learn new things and to bring that into, into, and bring that into an ordered state, then that necessitates getting out of the comfort zone and, and, um, and somehow being prepared for that. And so that's, the, that's kind of the, I think that gets to the, the conflict between the more kind of progressive liberal element of society and the more conservative one too, because the conservatives don't want new stuff. And like I've said before, like conservatives can't make movies, for instance, like as, as bad as, as liberals might be, they're the only ones who are creative, creative enough to make a good movie. Because if you look at the kind of creative endeavors that conservatives get into, it's cringeworthy. Like, um, the, like I've, I've watched a few and I've seen some like explicitly conservative movies and they're just terrible. Like it's just, it's torture to just to, to watch anything like that. Whereas you take a crazy liberal and, um, and watch something that they make, it can be like excellent, like great and like mind expanding. And then you find out like their political opinions and it's just like, Oh my God, how did this person create this? Because, and, well, and I guess that's the, that's the history of art, you know, crazy artists, like just totally total, total, total degenerates making great stuff that we remember today. But, um, but, uh, again, that strange duality. But uh, I don't know, maybe I'll think about it some more, and I, I might have another point to make about that, but I just wanted to bring that one up. Well, just, uh, just to pick up where you left off on the, that strange duality, uh, this is what Jordan Peterson has to say on the utility of, of mythology. He writes, knowledge of the grammar of mythology might well constitute an antidote to ideological gullibility. Genuine myths are capable of representing the totality of conflicting forces operating in any given situation. Every positive force has its omnipresent and eternal enemy, quote-unquote. The beneficial aspect of the, quote-unquote, natural environment is therefore properly viewed in light of its capacity to arbitrarily inflict suffering and death. The protective and sheltering capacity of society is therefore understood in light of its potent tendency to tyranny and the elimination of necessary diversity. The heroic aspect of the individual is regarded in light of the ever-lurking figure of the adversary, arrogant, cowardly, and cruel. A story accounting for all these quote-unquote constituent elements of reality is balanced and stable in contrast to an ideology and far less likely to produce an outburst of, so of social psychopathology. Um, because like, like you were discussing there, the, the great father is the protector and he establishes order. He's symbolic of civilization and our structured 
fact that we can, you know, I can walk down um, the street and and be relatively sure that everyone is going to interact in a way that is pretty habitual and normal and not too absolutely insane and that there's you know not just going to be some humvees going to come crashing down the street you know with guns blazing you know there's not going to be anything like that going on and yet at the same time that same force um can the the same force that can protect if it has the power to protect it clearly has the power to oppress as well so there's just that there's this um it's in some ways an antidote or a cure not necessarily a cure maybe it's just an antidote for black and white thinking and you know getting stuck in one um political ideologies one ideologically tainted way of viewing uh, an issue you know it's not like you can't you don't just with this the grammar of mythology as he puts it you don't see the world in terms of republican and democrat but you see it in terms of you know the the evil crone, you know, the evil, the, the devouring mother who in, in one, um, instance is the giver of all life. You know, you look at the universe, the, the abundance and, you know, just, you know, to our ancestors, this was clearly, you know, the, the gift of life came from a woman and, you know, it's mother, it's, it's a, it's a way of regulating your emotions. You know, these stories and in some senses, it's a way of saying, have this positive affection for the universe in general. It's going to help you, you know, you live your life. But at the same time, this, there's this, you know, this crazy floods, storms, the universe will just wipe an entire species out, you know, entire planets. You just have no idea what's going to happen. Like we were discussing, you know, earlier about the comets, cometary bombardments. I mean, you're talking about the evil mother, the devouring mother, just wiping out just entire continents. And, you know, but at the same time, this, this, this mythology, this grammar of, of myth, as he describes it, it allows you to see it in its twin aspects, mm-hmm. the all-devouring yet life-giving aspects, mm-hmm. the tyrannical father yet the protective order. You know, so you are, it's, it kind of helps immunize you um, from these ideological you know, possessed individuals who want you to rally you all around, you know, the sets, basically the, the adversaries, as he was discussing, the, the people who are cowardly, cruel and treacherous and are always out to, you know, trick you or, you know, trick the hero, you know, cut him up into 16 pieces and, you know, ship him down the Nile so that they can sit in their, you know, their ivory towers and talk about gender, you know, bending. And <laughs> you know what I mean? That's, um, this, that's the power of, of the grammar of mythology is that that it gives you this mental universe where you can, um, just like a kaleidoscope, just kind of just change things a little bit. And as you change one aspect, all of a sudden, you know, you get this kind of knock-on effect, domino effect of how every other element can change too. You know, the, you know, you change the, the one trait of the hero and it's, you know, an adversary to someone else, or you, you look at the, the mother in one light and you change it. And now she's the horrible devouring mother. And then, you know, but now you've got the great father's going to protect you from the devouring mother and, you know, vice versa. It's uh, it's really it's it's quite a, a a feat that I think he's done in in just making that trying to reintroduce that way of thinking into uh, uh, the the masses, I guess, us, us schlubs. <laughs> well, he he's got a good passage that alludes to some of the things you just said, Corey, and I do agree. I think you know 
sometimes you you know when you experience something negative um you know like a like a seth in the in the workplace or politically uh it's like it's a tragedy and it grips you and and that's all it is but that's not all it is mm -hmm. because because for every set there is a uh, an Isis, perhaps potential hero, who, yeah. or 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 the is it Marduk, the the sun, Horus, Horus, yeah. mm -hmm. different mythology. I'm thinking of uh, a Horus that comes back to um, to be the hero. But in any case, he's got this passage here that um, that alludes to some of what you just said. He says, "No matter where an individual lives, and no matter when, he faces the same set of problems, or perhaps the same set of meta problems." since the details differ endlessly. He is a cultural creature and must come to terms with the existence of that culture. He must master the domain of the known, explored territory, which is a set of interpretations and behavioral schemas he shares with his societal compatriots. He must understand his role within that culture, a role defined by the necessity of preservation, maintenance, and transmission of tradition as well as by capacity for revolution and radical update of that tradition when such update becomes necessary. So I guess the question is, when is it really necessary and, and, and productive and when isn't? And, and the devil is in the details, but he goes on. He must also be able to tolerate and even benefit from the existence of the transcendental unknown, unexplored territory which is the aspect of experience that cannot be addressed with mere application of memorized and habitual procedures, which gets back to what you were saying earlier, Harrison, that, that we're so inured to, uh, to some things and are, and, and so committed to our comfort zones that, um, that we're almost, uh, shocked to our core when there's some, some new, uh, some new feature to reality that, that, threatens to disturb all that. Finally, he must adapt to the presence of himself, must face the endlessly tragic problem of the knower, the exploratory process, the limited mortal subject, must serve as eternal mediator between the creative and destructive quote-unquote underworld of the unknown and the secure, oppressive patriarchal kingdom of human culture. And he, I don't quite think he means patriarchal in, in the way that we've been uh, hearing so much in contemporary news, although it could have some similarities. But um, certainly uh, in, in this passage, you know, he's laying out the, um, you know, in this, in this context of being in one's culture, being in one's society, um, uh, assimilating and integrating the the traditions, the myths, uh, what you know, what the challenges of a of a person in this world is right now, and um, and certainly it's necessary to have enough distance um, from these ideas, or enough perspective, or enough knowledge of them, that you can take a look back to some degree, uh, such that would enable you to 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 make the um the heroic you know for lack of a better word decisions of being a person in this world well i want to tie this back to something we talked about last week in the afterlife show 
And that was this idea of the kind of rigid belief systems that people have that to the, for the most part, the vast majority of people have, I'll just say all people <laughs> have a, have a rigid belief system, whether they know it or not. I refuse to believe that. Yeah. That's very rigid of you, Corey. So, um, and, and the, the downside of that. So of course, from Peterson's perspective, this is the, the, uh, the tyranny of order and, what should be the response to that? Like, what is the, how should we react to that situation, to that status quo? Um, well, I think the, the answer is in a lot of these myths that, uh, that we, can't be, we can't be satisfied with the status quo because that will just lead to, to um, this kind of hardening and ossification and, you know, stultification, this, uh, this lack of... of um, Lack of energy and vigor, it just becomes it become, becomes dead in a sense. It loses its life, um, becomes boring, and there is there is always a danger of of that situation obtaining for for any individual. There are all kinds of downsides because well, one of the downsides is that you're not prepared for anything new. You're not prepared for an uh, an encounter with chaos, and so really the the hero in this case is the one who. Um, I think, with has first of all an awareness of the tradition and, and the place in which you find yourself, and in which he finds himself, the the traditions, the the social structure, the the interactions, just everything that's that's normal. But that is kind of like the that should be the the shell of of uh, of the hero is just to not be limited by by those structures and by those ideas and by those behaviors, because. If you're going to learn anything, you have to you have to step outside of that comfort zone, and the process I think that you see when this happens is is one of disillusionment to a large degree. You see this a lot in uh, in people who who leave their religion or who gain religion, um, who leave their old self behind and then acquire this kind of new template on which they order their lives, and. They, they so this hero's journey has to be a, a venture out of the the known, out of the walled area, and in order to find something new. And I think the like the, the way that plays out is that you, is, is through a questioning of one's like given beliefs, because we're given so much, we're like instilled with so much that we haven't we haven't acquired on our own. It's just presented to us, and as children, we we like sop it all up. And I've seen this with um, with kids in my experience, like watching children that I know grow up, how they just they just adopt certain uh, well everything. They adopt behavioral patterns, like even just physical movements. Of course, there's the language that they use, like the the word choices, the kind of fad language that teenagers adopt with each other, and the and just from a, from a younger age, in um, like you know maybe four or five six years, it's it's really interesting to see. Um, religious dogma take shape. It's like, oh, we'll we'll know. Like, um, well, I won't get. In, I, I won't. I don't really have any specifics, but just certain like beliefs about Jesus and and God. And it's like, well, well, how do you know that? It's like, you you were told that, and yet this little child just believes it without any kind of evidence. And of course, some of these beliefs might be might be true. You can you can have, let's say. Uh, a curriculum for small children that is nothing but true, hypothetically, and then just tell these children, 
and they'll eat it all up. But all they're doing, they've just, in, they've just assimilated all of this true information, but none of it is their own. They're just repeating it. They don't know why it's true. They don't know how it's true. And because that's an ideal situation, because that's not the way reality actually is, as children, we get in, like, uh, we get, we assimilate all kinds of things that aren't true, that we assume are true just because they've been presented to us. So there's this, this, this is the negative aspect of tradition and of history is that while there may be a lot of value in it, first, like one, we, we acquire it totally automatically with no conscious thought of our own, no discernment whatsoever. And two, there's a lot of stuff that is just plain wrong and potentially, uh, well, just plain wrong. And so the, the hero's journey, I think, has to be one of like deeply questioning all of the things that we've automatically acquired in our upbringings and even, th even up to the, the, to the present moment, the things that we're acquiring on a daily basis. And the, the strategic, like heroic way of dealing with that is to not, not push too many buttons at once. Mm -hmm. you, have to, you have to wear the clothes that the people around you are wearing to a greater or lesser degree. You can't... Um, um, if you're too far outside the norm, you just you're painting a target on your on your back mm -hmm. because, like you know, like I mentioned, like Peterson talked about, the the more the, the more safe a culture is, the more um, the more civilized a, a people is, the more they will um, lash out against any kind of difference. So if you're this like heroic person and questioning all your beliefs, and you and you go out on the street telling everyone they're wrong about everything you're just going to get, you know, chopped off like immediately. There, there's a, there's some strategy to be had here. Mm -hmm. And that is to, to kind of, um, um, to be a bit, um, to be a bit cunning, like, a like in all, in, in all kinds of fables or stories about the, you know, the person who's, who's smart enough to, to get across what, what he wants to get across without, um, you know, without everyone lynching, lynching him, basically. Um, but then there are stories and myths about the about the about martyrs, about people who kind of yeah. um, who encounter the the tyranny of the of the status quo, and um, and I think the the function they have their function too. It's like there's there's a time for mm -hmm. for strategic um, evasion of persecution for being. Uh, for being a bit um, countercultural, mm -hmm. and then there's the the value of making a big splash and and being remembered for generations for for pointing out the absolute absurdity and stupidity of the of the everyday culture, and um, yeah, just again, it's 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 a complex situation. Like he points out, there are all of these um, these conflicting positives and negatives that are in all these different combinations that it's just a total mess. Yeah. And, and these, uh, these figures, these archetypal patterns or whatever, they, they can pop up anywhere. Like, as we were saying, they don't have a set face. Like the universe isn't a mother, you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? That's, you know, it's not an actual human mother, but it takes on this, this quality that, you know, a man could, he could play the role of the devouring um, mother, you know, the, it could, this archetype could come through him or, you know, any, any of these other examples that you've been bringing up or then that we've been discussing, they don't have any fixed, um, 
existence. But whenever they do pop up, that you have an attitude or you have an, an idea of what they taste like mm-hmm. or what they more closely, this closely resembles set, you know, this Seth, this character that, um, that has pure contempt for human existence. Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to college and this professor does, he doesn't even believe that humans have consciousness. They don't even exist. Well, you're like, Oh, what you know? What am I hearing? Am I hearing Seth? You know, it's like this, this adversary, I'm hearing the adversary, um, in, in here. And, and so I, you know, how do, what is, should my attitude be towards this? And like, like you said, if, if you're, if you want to be a failed hero, you're going to stand up, throw your chair and, and say, but my Christian beliefs tell me, or, you know, but I read this one book you know, <laughs> on channeling and it told me different than you, you know, what, um, the, you know, the path of the hero, like you said, is, it's a little bit more cunning, a little more, a little bit more strategic where you kind of get in the head of the enemy and you understand that, you know, a lot of times in, you know, in this world there, you know, Seth doesn't, you're not actually fighting for Osiris in the underworld. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're, what you're doing is you're just trying to be effective. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, I, can I, I just yeah, want to yeah. go on just a little bit about what you were, uh, what you were discussing about our, the, the world that we live in that we don't really understand because there's a really good um, quote. I want to read from Jordan Peterson from this chapter, number two. He says, as mutable, limited social beings, we are all engaged in a massive, cooperative, and competitive endeavor. We do not understand the rules that govern this endeavor. In the final analysis, we cannot state explicitly why it is that we do what we do. Our democratic constitutions, for example, which contain the most fundamental axioms of the quote-unquote body of law that we imitate, that governs our behavior, are inextricably embedded in the conception of natural rights, which is to say, in a statement of faith. We hold these truths to be self-evident. We are all, in consequence, imitating a story that we don't understand. This story covers the broadest possible expanse of time and space, at least that expanse relevant to us, and is still implicitly, quote-unquote, contained in our behavior, although represented in part in episodic imagery and semantic description. This partially implicit containment constitutes our mythology and our ritual and provides the, quote-unquote, upper-level, unconscious frames of reference within which our conditional and expressible individual stories retain their validity." And I think that what he's he's describing, I think we all kind of can agree that, yeah, sure, not everybody knows. Like, you can't possibly know exactly why you do everything that you do, right? It goes back to what you were saying. And we live in a world that it's a lot of it we get of our behaviors, of our beliefs. We just get through sheer imitation. And we can start to question those things as we you know, as we grow older. And one of the problems that besets a hero, I think, is that if you're questioning these beliefs, you have taken, a, you know, and you're serious about it, um, you, ha- you run the risk of potentially bringing down those protective barriers that the patriarch, that the established order has set up for you. These things, they seem to have, they've worked for some extent. People are getting fed you know, we're, there's these people, you know, it's, it's working in some, in some way, but you, you question the validity of some things. Well, so now you have to go, you have to set yourself this task to understand what it is that you're, what, what it is it that you don't understand? You have to question your own beliefs about what you're doing. You know, what does it really mean to be 
a good citizen or what does it mean to be uh you know a democrat or republican i've got all these beliefs or whatever people tell me what they expect i imitate other people and i seem to get along that seems to be working all right but you know you can take uh, an attitude towards it where it's like well i i want to um this is kind of the way of the fool really isn't it that you kind of just like the fool always has something to learn there's nothing there's nothing out there i mean the fool has everything to learn he's an idiot Right. That's I mean, I think that's that's kind of uh, an opposite extreme, you know, because obviously you don't want to be plunging yourself all the way into the unknown. Right. But you want to find the balance between what you know and what you don't know and creatively interact with that in a way that you're understanding more and more and you're establishing a newer order and i think that's the biggest thing that the the hero does is that he goes he faces the unknown of you know just this sheer amount of technological complexity that we live right now you know and it's like a heroic endeavor in and of itself to even you know like try and you know understand nobody can probably possibly understand how how the systems that we live in right now and rely on actually work but they've grown, you know, from strange little iterative computer programs to giant functions to browsers to huge databases to artificial intelligence, you know, these these things that we're living in now that, you know, can increasingly govern and control our, our behavior. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not quite under, I don't quite understand what he means when he says this partially implicit containment constitutes our mythology. You know, that's that's one thing that I couldn't really wrap my head around. Do you have any thoughts on that, Harrison? I figured I you'd be the guy I could ask for that. Let me, let me see that full quote this again. The very, this is the very bottom. But it, I mean, in that, if he, if if that's true, then it's like this, um, this implicit containment within our behavior in regards to technology. Like, is technology part of our mythology? You know, is it, or is he? Is it strictly uh, explicit? Well, myths that he's discussing. Well, let me just let me reread the the last couple sentences there. So he says, "We are all, in consequence, imitating a story we don't understand. This story covers the broadest possible expanse of time and space, at least that expanse relevant to us, and is still implicitly contained in our behavior, although represented in part in episodic imagery and semantic description." So he's talking about this. Uh, this vague story that we don't necessarily know consciously, but that we that we express through our behavior. Yeah. Um, so in in imitation, kind of, or even deeper than imitation, it's just something on a, on a very fundamental level that we that we express in our behavior. The mythology captures that, and so the mythology is um, it's implicitly contained in our everyday actions. So this partially implicit containment of that story in our behavior constitutes our mythology. So I guess he's saying that, um, that the, that the, just the, that the mythology is that implicit containment it is, is the, it is the behaviors that are, or no, it is, it is the, like the stories and the narratives that are, um, that our behaviors act out mm-hmm. and, um, and our ritual, um, it's our mythology and our ritual and provides the upper level unconscious frames of reference within which our conditional and expressible individual stories retain their validity. So, um, well, like a lot of this, this book, I think he, uh, it, it gets quite wordy at times. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, what I took that to mean was that there are, there are these much larger 
um, things that go way beyond time and space that, that are manifested uh, in microcosm in our day-to-day. And even if they mundane. haven't become explicit yet, that there is, uh, there's a story there. There's a narrative that's implicit yeah. in our actions. Yeah. And that, that, that is, I think, even more critical for us now to understand what the myth is for our, you know, what myth we're playing out. Yeah, and I, I think that comes back to, the, to what we were talking about just a bit earlier. So we have these implicit patterns of behaviors. And the, so that can play, it out, play itself out. We implicitly act out the, the cultural, societal things that we've just ingested in our childhoods and, and in growing up. And tying that into what you were saying, Corey, about, the, uh, about what the real hero should be, that in the, in the questioning of all of those things, which I think the hero does... There is, I think what that process is, is a kind of sifting. So you question everything, but when you, when, as you're questioning and when you're, when you're getting through your questioning, it's a matter of the, of the wheat and the chaff. It's like, okay, well, I believed this unconsciously, but there's a reason, a good reason for me to actually believe it now. I actually think that this, that there is some truth in this, whereas this no, I, you know, I've come to the conclusion that I should reject this, not act this out or, or, you know, whatever. But it's that it's a constant weighing of each piece of, of, you know, cultural accretion that has made you who you are now so that you can now reform yourself. But, but in the process, uh, in that heroic process of, of, um, of questioning, there's the risk of becoming a Seth as opposed, as opposed to a Horus, right? Mm-hmm. So there's the risk of rejecting everything mm-hmm. and, and then tearing everything down. And that's, uh, like that would be a perversion or a corruption of the, of the process because, because there are things, it, the, the world is mixed in the sense of mixed with good and bad things, mixed with things that are effective and non-effective now, things that are relevant and now irrelevant, things that are productive and now counterproductive. And it's the, it's the, it's the process of determining and, and discerning which is which that will then contribute to the reestablished order. Um, and then, but, but, but then you have the, the Seths of the world who just want to tear everything down because they never get, they, they can't see the value in, in parts of the tradition, parts of the tradition that actually still have value, or that can be reinvigorated, and so then they become agents of destruction and chaos, and um, and don't actually bring a new order, um, or at least um, you know they they can bring a new order, but it, it's oftentimes a, a much a much more corrupt and and tyrannical order mm-hmm. um, through you know, when they're actually going for the opposite. So failure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that does it for us uh, this week. We really appreciate you tuning in. Uh, just remember, the next time you're thrust into the unknown, that you could potentially be a hero, and you could also potentially be an adversary. We can be heroes. We could be heroes. Did so hit like, please subscribe, and check out Elon's latest album, <laughs> where he covers <laughs> karaoke channel, where he sings the classics. <laughs> Thank you very much for tuning in, everybody. Have a great week. Bye-bye.